Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 49 of the uh, Design Exec Club Town Hall. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me are some very smart people from the design world, executives who are involved in how design is applied and also how design creates opportunities to accelerate to a better future. Um, Richard, I'm going to move across to you and, and have a chat with you here. You've made lots of brands. To me, a brand is a standard of what people might expect, but brands aren't actually rigid like they used to be. I remember NASA had a style guide, which was, you know, like a 300-page book, and the NASA logo had to be done exactly this way. It had been thought through from an engineering perspective. But that's not how brands and how what they represent works today, is that there's a certain amount of latitude and interpretation there. Uh, well, yeah, there's, that is correct. There's the, at the end of a project, a brand project, there is a set of guidelines. But in my experience, I think the days of producing a 300-page document uh, that sits on a shelf costs an absolute fortune uh, over. And we now have uh, what I would see as an interpretation of a brand, the, the principles that actually reside in the actual mark itself, which is the tip of the pinnacle, has to be documented extremely carefully because that is the, that is the recognisable icon that is uh, that that you know that brand know like trust in the marketplace. But what how it's interpreted, I think, has now become much more of an interesting agenda. And uh, as uh, as we all know, there's different materials, there's different processes. Things are no longer able to be just purely documented in a series of four or five different ways because there are multiple ways. So what you tend to do, I think, is to try and find, first of all, in an organisation, need a brand guardian, someone who's actually looking after the brand. That really should be the CEO, uh, but obviously most times it goes down into, into management and it needs a set of principles that are not to be altered and that has to be carefully articulated so someone using the, the, the style guide understands those principles. Then, hopefully, there is a, a goodwill factor that they're trying to do the right thing by the brand identity that was created to make sure they've added their bit that can still be recognisable as being a quality statement. And that's that's the big subjective area. That's the area where you see sort of some crazy things happening. But at the same time, Mark, nowadays I think it's good to have some craziness. I think it's good to be able to actually play and explore with things because, um, you know, uh, things are no longer in strict uh, standards and strict formats. It's a, it's, a, it's a bit of an open open uh, open agenda now. So I think a bit of craziness is good, but there's a certain point where the craziness becomes beyond the pale. It's something that we can't accept. How do you actually, because you've, you've talked about standards, guidelines, principles, and that there's some latitude to interpret it, but there's also a point where it's no longer what the original intention was. Well, I think I'm probably talking there, Mark, more about the what I would call the look and feel or the visual language connected with the brand. If you're talking about the brand itself, the iconic elements that make up a logo as such, which could be a graphic form and a piece of topography and a composition, that is, you don't alter that unless you've got good reason to, unless you work with the company to actually change that. But what you do with that, Mark, a logo, I think there is permission is granted to do things that you want to do with it, but you would never, ever change the fundamental DNA of the mark. That would be, I mean, it's virtually vandalism, but because there's so much principle have been, has been created and developed into that, into that iconic, what we call the iconic signature. And one of the things we do as nowadays in our work, I always try as a principle in, in our work is to include the graphic and the word together so that they are, that they are indivisible, locked, 
um, uh, you know, not a bit, bit similar to say Coca-Cola or mobile, you know, there's a graphic within the word, FedEx, the, 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 the image is in the word. That means there's less elements to be mucked around with and it's a much more powerful statement. Okay, so, so on your way to working out that visual identity that represents a set of values, uh, that uh, the principles of the organisation, you'd go through a series of um, research and workshops to make sure the brand promise that was there was going to be something that the organisation could deliver on or that they might need to do some work? Or is it basically, let's come up with a logo for you and let's hope that actually embodies right. that? Now what, a, now, what a provocative statement that was, Mark, that last little thing there, you know. Because <laughs> oh, I, I, sometimes it feels like I'm teaching people how to, you know, paint by numbers and mansplaining or design splaining. So, so the reason I did that is that you and I know how it's going to happen, but for other people, they don't realise that yeah, there's actually a lot of intent. Look, the best, the best iconic brands and identities are the ones that look so simple, and that someone could have also could have done it, except no one else did do it. So that is the that is the science and the art. And uh, Bruce Mao, I'm just reading his book, which is a fantastic new book, talks about being lost in the forest. And that's what you do when you're doing brands. You get you go into the forest, you get lost, you find a pathway. In that process, you uh, develop the strategies, the thinking of how you're going to uh, fulfil your journey through that forest into something at the end, which is manifested in, in, a, in a graphic creative form. So science and art science of the thinking and art in terms of the graphic elements that you put together are indivisible in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in quality and effective brand identity design. All right. So I'm going I'm to park you for a moment, Richard, and I want to pick up with Betsy here and talk because restoration hardware, you've got product which is trying to move from one country to another. There's probably a whole bunch of technical standards about that a fabric is allowed in one country but isn't allowed in another or the fabric has to have three classification or standard classifications so it can move to multiple countries. Is that a fair reading of how complex your world is? It actually is, and it's uh, many of the standards within the materials are for safety. I mean, one of the biggest standards is the flame retardancy. One country has one standard, another country has another one country has things for a horizontal, the other country has something for a vertical, but it's it's all about safety and it comes from the experience of people using products and knowing that if you if you were actually going to use it in a particular way, it has to meet a, a brand standard. Um, so it, it's been interesting how things have evolved, especially the British standards are probably the most prevalent. Um, the Americas adopted their own set of standards that don't speak to the, each other. So what has been created is a bit of an evolution of standards. You know, standards become what's good for one country isn't necessarily good for another. Okay. So, so far we've got that standards represent a set of principles, which is uh, what the organisation stands for. And then we've got that standards are also about the technical aspect, and those standards are many and varied based on in this case here, safety that's in there. But is that the only area that you bump into standards or when you've actually get down to your clients, do they also have standards that they want you to adhere to? Uh, well, and it's a, it's a good question because it's the, um, the interpretation of standards as well. So as Richard was talking about, the brand guardian really has to be important. So in the case of our clients, it's a lot of the hotels. So each of the hotel brands have what they call a standard. 
the standard can be very technical. A bed has to be a particular brand, has to be a particular composition. But it, when it comes to the design of hotel, that is very much open to interpretation. Um, but the, the brand guardian for each of those standards are a very senior level person who watches over that brand to make sure that if there's a loyalty from a guest, that when they go to a hotel in Morocco, it's going to be the same as Bangkok, is going to be the same as, as Australia. So that is what is important when dealing with many, many different people who could interpret the brand to be very different depending on what their perception of that brand is and if the guardian can step in and make sure that he maintains that standard. Okay, so then they're like a, a corporate standard that helps give our personality so that the experience it's in there. Right. Yes, yes. Okay. So, Dave, I've left you to be our third leg on this um, stool that we've got here around standards because if you're not there, we fall over, okay? So I've got to remember that. You, you apply people's brands and you create those experiences that will be matched to the corporate um, expectation. You also have to apply to technical standards with the work that you do doing mega graphics. So the technical one, that's pretty easy. That's about safety. It's pretty parametric. You have to do this or the work on the site stops. So I think that is pretty easy to talk about. But tell me about when somebody like Richard has gone delivered to one of the major hotel chains, let's say Hyatt, and they've said, well, we're going to do a redevelopment. There's a fantastic visual identity that's there. And now it's been given to you to go and actually wrap the building. Can you just pick up his documents or do you have to actually interpret how you go do that? So I've, I've written down a few things. We are the brand guardians. We're the ones that are actually on the front line. So we're the very last people that touch the graphic or touch the brand. So making sure it gets delivered as per what Richard designs, we are dictated to by what comes into the country in Australia. It's, it's Australian standards. So we have to adhere. Basically, what we get is, is our substrate, and this is what we're going to go and produce Richard's design and, and what the vision is. So we have to sort of interpret that and deliver on a corporate message. But we work for small brands just the same as the Lendlease. So we work for Joe the Builder just down the road or Lendlease Frasers and Colliers, what have you. So any of the product that comes in the country, that's what we have to use. And we need to actually work around that to try and determine the same is in Bangkok or the same is in New York, even though we all get different product to deal with. How do you do that is by standardizing a system um, to work with Richard's principles, to deal with the standard products that we is available to us here. Safety standards for me, are I, I have to adhere to Lend-Lease standard, minimum standard safety requirements on site. Otherwise, I can't get there. I can't work for Lend-Lease if I don't have enough staff here that actually design our standards to fit into their minimum requirements. So I, I, I have to navigate a whole bunch of, of um, routes to, at the end of the day, the only way I get more work is by delivering Richards. Uh, I, I, think, I, I think on that too, David, um, yeah, that's why people, consultants work together with each other. I mean, there's, there's this term consultant and supplier. I see a, a company like you as a consultant supplying an outcome Okay, uh, but one of the other aspects to take into account, there are so many standards that you need to adhere to. Sometimes the last thing that's actually looked at is actually the, 
actual element itself because you've got so many other other, other considerations to, to do. So, I mean, we had a situation recently where, you know, we did all the work, the signage has been done, and the, the, the operator who put the, who put the sign onto the wall uh, actually didn't do it straight. Now, you know, made this beautiful sign. It's all, you know, carefully managed. Everyone's careful looking for it. But the final detail is lost on the standard, a straight standard of make that brand mark horizontal. So, you know, the, the, those are the incredible sort of uh, the, 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 the triumphs and the tragedies uh, of uh, implementing uh, standards uh, that might be created by others. Mm. So people, yeah. how do you standardise a person? But even with technical standards, I think the, the, the most interesting story I know about technical standards would be the Hubble telescope. So America uses inches and the calculation between millimetres and decimal inches it meant that there was enough variation in the Hubble telescope that this billion-dollar project gets thrown up, you know, the biggest uh, telescope we've ever thrown into the sky, and a little bit like Richard's sign that, you know, it, it wasn't straight, it, was, it looked right, but actually the Hubble telescope had this calculation error that meant that the mirror wasn't actually able to focus. So therefore the whole purpose of setting up the Hubble telescope was broken because of one of those conversion factors that, that's in there. So even when we've got lots of technical standards, we get some things which aren't right. Now, I love the idea that the sign was, uh, was technically perfect and just wasn't straight. Um, that to me is one of those things where you're going, wow, couldn't you have get the, the minimum thing done? But there was so much other work that had to be in there. Okay. So we've got principles as, as a standard. We've got our technical standards here. We've got corporate standards. The technical ones sound like they're in a tight box and we can, and they're actually, eventually you're going to tick a box. Am I compliant? Do I meet the minimum requirement? Tick. The corporate standards are pretty easy, uh, Betsy, because I'd imagine they've turned around and they've defined them or they help you understand very quickly whether you're actually compliant to their standards or not, even if they haven't been defined. The principal standards are very interesting what they mean and things change and things shift. You know, we're seeing in Australia at the moment a dramatic shift in what's acceptable behaviour in our Parliament House. Things that were allowed to happen were particularly around misconduct towards uh, female staff members that, from a principal perspective, three months ago was acceptable and now is absolutely not acceptable. So those principles change very quickly. But it's how do we agree what those change principles are and where do we tighten up our focus? That, to me, is the interesting dilemma because if we get people who are trying to subvert our society, they're going to work to actually muddy our understanding of what those principles are. And I think it's it's pretty widely accepted that over the last four or five years that various state actors have been trying to go and interrupt Western societies through disinformation, information wars. So how do we actually return back to the standards that give us more of a peaceful existence, that there's more of a common understanding. Any idea how we do that, Richard? Just, Mark, you've just um, segued into a huge philosophical um, discussion, which is exactly. uh, virtually boundless. Uh, I think um, what, you, what we're talking about there is the standards of how we would like to live with each other and on this earth and the standards that we would um, use or be brought up with, the values that we have, and how we work together, live together, love together, and um, and basically uh, look after this planet that we're on. 
so that's a you know it's a you, you've opened a huge uh, discussion there, and I think the standards you were talking about before are measurable. measurable you know, so you can you can make a quantificate you can you can quantify them. You can say, well, that was not quite right. Reasons why. There are other aspects, like you're mentioning, human behaviour. It's difficult sometimes to understand how human behaviour works because there are certain pressures, just in a professional sense. There's, there's human behaviour in terms of how a client operates, how a consultant operates, how people operate on a project, the respect offered to each other, uh, the respect of the outcome, the effort. There and there's, but there are certain in principle in, in professional practice, there are certainly standards of the way you operate. Uh, that would be something we could talk, discuss, and quantify, but. When you talk about the bigger picture uh, of ourselves as a, as a human human race in the in the big picture of life, wow! Okay, and, and there's, a, there's a reason why I've brought up something which is so complicated, because before the information wars began, the culture wars, we had a, a say a more cohesive understanding of what was acceptable and what wasn't. How do we actually deal with our, our, and discuss things? So we can, we can go back in time and say there was a normalised circumstance here and now we've got an abnormal circumstance. How did we get to that norm? Like, did that take a week or did it take decades to get to that normalised understanding of what was acceptable? What were the principles that we had? And I, I think it took decades, if not centuries. And now we've had somebody or actors who have come in and have interrupted that normalised state and now we're in this abnormal state how do we get back to the normalised state? How do we get back to the point where we can have a, a conversation where we respect each other's difference and diversity of opinion rather than trying to get to I must win, you must lose? That to me is a very interesting challenge, particularly if we're people who are trying to help people accelerate into the future. And that's the reason why I've put it into this series is the difficulty is how do we actually get out of the siege that we've got through culture wars and get to being able to understand diversity, difference, and actually get to those standards. And it's not meant to be a trap. It's, it's okay. If I knew how to do it, I'd write a book and I'd make it a squillion bucks. But it, if we don't ask the question, we don't get to the answer. Betsy, have you got any thoughts? You know, you're a you're an American. You've um, seen your country go through probably some of the largest upheaval next to the United Kingdom. And there's been a lot of change there that's gone on, and it's mainly been through... Um, say, bad actors trying to go disrupt the American economy and society rather than good actors. Well, it's interesting because you talked about how do we get back to the standard. And I think what is what Richard has said is completely correct. There has to be a standard of human decency. And, and we assume that everyone has the same standard of what is right and how to live with each other, how to treat each other with respect but that doesn't exist. And it varies dramatically, certainly within the Americas, as you've seen of, of how certain individuals have been treated, will continue to be treated. And this has been hundreds and hundreds of years where things haven't really evolved all that much. So when you talk about getting back to the standard, I think it's more about how do you learn from the past so that you're no longer creating the same mistakes and how do you learn from other other environments, other countries, other groups of people that have done it well so that you no longer go back to that standard where you say it's okay to treat people this way? Mm. But yes, what's going on now and what will I think continue to go on for the, for the next hundred years in, in some unfortunate way, um, I think the standards will be evolving certainly within the US 
Um, but the same for Australia. I mean, the, 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 the things that are going on now in the government where you say, um, was there a standard that said that this was just wrong? Or was it left to interpretation that everyone assumed that they knew there should be levels of, of respect for each other within the government, how you treat each other? Apparently there weren't. It had to be written down somewhere. So someone said, that's absolutely wrong. And, and I think, you know, I can think of four names in the last hundred years that go and summarize where we knew that we were on the wrong path. You know, Stalin was a tyrant. Hitler was a tyrant. Ceausescu was a tyrant. Pol Pot was a tyrant. So we went away from what we would consider acceptable principles and then we've worked out how to get back. So we've, we've seen this happen multiple times in the last 100 years. The question is, how do we do it today when we know that part of our media and part of the way that publishing happens, that that's, a bit, that, that's still broken because the people who actually want to subvert our society have a megaphone and the people who want to actually return it to normal actually don't understand that megaphone and don't do and haven't got the same tools. Dave, have you got some thoughts there? Because I know that you need to run away uh, relatively soon. Help us out because this isn't any of our expertise. You know, we're just looking at it and we're trying to understand how do we find this? What, what stone do we have to lift up to go find some answers or do we need to wait for others? I don't think you're going to fix it, but I think you can work towards... For me, I think it's acceptance that when you pick up the stone, you accept what's in on there. If someone thinks something differently, I mean, Richard deals with brands. So one Coca-Cola and Pepsi, they have different fundamental values. I'm assuming totally different brand identities. So I think it's how you collaborate and work together and accept one another. And what I like and what you like and what Betsy likes and Richard like are going to be somewhat different. And depending on I've lived around the world, I grew up in Bangkok, you know, I traveled here by myself 20 years ago. So I needed some people to accept who I am and what I look like and what I stand for. And and for me, fortunately, that's that's worked out. But for other people, it doesn't. And there is, I mean, like in the US and, and even here from an indigenous perspective, it's people have polarized views of what what each other thinks and believes being right or wrong. So I don't think you're going to fix it. I think opportunity comes from conflict. And, you know, I, I, I benefit from it. So while people benefit and financially get rewarded, then I'm I can't see how you how you fix it. It's it's just how you work together, and I think that's going to be a very very difficult um, path. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm interested in the role that sport and and the different clubs in sporting leagues provide. You know, I, I grew up where there were um, twelve teams in the Australian Football League, and that there were twelve tri- tribes, and <laughs> they all had very different personalities. And there were a couple of those tribes that everyone else disliked and there was a couple of tribes that thought that they were far better than each other and they brought their legacy. But what I see going, uh, uh, children that grow up involved with that, they get to be taught about diversity. Now, sometimes the diversity is hatred, but a, a lot of the time it's actually acceptance that there's actually this diversity there. And, I, you know, we, um, many of our sporting codes now seem to run off their capacity to go get television rights rather than the role that they have in our community. Richard, you've done a bunch of sporting brands, probably more than anyone I've ever met in the world. 
how does sport actually help to teach us standards and the way that we go live a life? Does it does it give young people an opportunity to understand what an acceptable conduct is, or is it basically just about sponsorship and winning? Um, I, yeah, I can answer that. But could I just go back to the original, the start of that conversation where we finish off what Dave was talking about? I actually think, uh, I actually really believe that our environment and how mankind operates within the environment as part of one part of life, as an ongoing uh, journey, life is, can, we will potentially be extinct and life will still go on. I think the way we inhabit this planet is going to be the undeniable standard by which everyone will have to, at some point in time, uh, connect with, otherwise we are basically going to be extinct and we're on a pathway to that already. So that to me is the ultimate standard. The ultimate standard is how we all operate on this earth. Uh, it doesn't matter whether rich or poor, you know, where you are, it, that is the standard. And I think more and more that is going to become self-evident as we, you know, hurtle ourselves into this uh, uh, place that we currently enjoy, which will be become potentially uninhabitable. So that's, that's my yeah. big standard. And I, wonder, and I wonder when the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals will actually become the survival goals. <laughs> and, you know, like, because at the moment it still feels like it's an option, but we know that there's actually, the planet will keep revolving around the sun. Yeah. It's going to keep doing that. It's whether we survive that's the issue. And if we take down the amount of biodiversity, we're not going to survive. If we keep polluting, we're not going to survive. If we, yeah. And I think on that, Mark, you know, part of the... The only way out of that of that uh, dilemma that we're in is through design, through a design, science, and you know cultural process. And when we think about design, more and more, I'm I'm more conscious of the idea that design is all is full circle. Design is the thinking of the uh, the project itself, the solution to the project. It's the management of the project. It's the waste that happens in the project. What does that do? How does that get brought back into a sustainable situation? So we're looking, we must look at much more as a full circle. And that, that's where a designer's mind and a designer's thinking and the way we operate through design as a process is fundamental to our, our very existence. So, um, you know, I think that, that, that whole, this whole notion of what, what role design plays, design is in nature, design is in life, the design of the universe. So uh, when we're, our, whole, our whole body is made up of designs of millions of cells and inside those cells there's a design system as well. As well. So um, that's, I think, uh, it's a big picture, but that's fundamentally what I think we should be thinking about. So I want to go then back here because you, you touched on the cultural side that we need to change some cultural things. And I'll go back to that part about the sporting clubs. So, you know, sport is a fantastic platform to go and actually bring culture into societies. Yeah. Young people learn about competition. They learn about winning and losing. They also learn about good sportsmanship, poor sportsmanship. They learn about the fact that you become better because you have contemporaries who are also pushing to be better so that you understand that that helps us all progress. And you understand that there's different viewpoints, but it's not necessarily right or wrong. They're just different tribes, different viewpoints. So there's a tremendous amount there. We saw in, for the viewers who aren't in Australia, we saw recently our, our largest football sporting club came out with a report that said maybe they'd been not 
as diverse as they could be, that they had racial um, issues that existed amongst the club and they needed to update themselves. And at the very moment the report came out, the president of that club got told, you are part of the past, you are not part of the future. And within a month he was then told to leave the club that he'd been the president of for uh, more than a decade. And I think that's interesting because that shows that there's that the standards have changed dramatically of what is acceptable in our community for that sporting club. Dave, just before you go, is, you know, you're probably not that familiar with Australian rules football <laughs> and as, you know, died in the wool as some of us are. Did that surprise you that you saw all of a sudden some people saying maybe we haven't been great on diversity and inclusion with First Nations people and then it's actually now it's time for you to leave the room? Yeah, well, it's true. That's maybe they were and, and what he did stepping aside is maybe that's the honorable thing to do but i i do believe the media control this circus so much and until people accept that there's going to be differences then you're always going to have conflict you're always going to have people believing that they're better or someone else is richer and i want more and and i think honestly from a sports side of it or business side of it we're we're designed to be different, where none of us are the same. Every single one of us is different. And I think to standardize a person is impossible. And I, I think, and I hope that at some point we can be reporting the positive things more than the negative things. At the moment, I don't watch the news anymore because it's predominantly negative. So I am from Scotland, Celtic Rangers and Aberdeen hate each other. I used to go to the football games and there would be rocks thrown at the buses and the police are standing there. They don't do anything. It's accepted that that's what's going to happen. Before you go into the stadium, you're going to get attacked and that creates a frenzy. So, and the media love it. <clears throat> that's what they show. So I, I don't know. Maybe that's where you start and it is the media and what we report. And that to me is part of that old culture, which is that there was like there was a focus beam. This is the on, the only thing that is acceptable is is our pure focus, our position, and that's why it was acceptable to throw rocks at other people. Now it seems that we're getting into the idea that it's actually oh, there's this is the territory we have. Accept us for what we want. If you like us, be part of us. Be part of this community. But there's other patches on the patchwork quilt, you, you could be part of that as well. And so that's the difference between actually being more pragmatic or being very dogmatic. Our position is the only position. And we found that when we went and did the series about unity, that mm. it turned in that the Americans were very much that unity only meant that there was one oneness rather than actually thinking of the union of the collective. It got down to just being this singular. Betsy, you would have found this as you've travelled around the world that there'd be a difference between, you know, some of the American lenses of what a word means and then what words have meant as you've travelled in different parts of the world. That's a very interesting cultural thing, isn't it? It is a very interesting... Well, and like David, I have spent the last almost 30 years outside of the country and raised a child outside of the country who was a mix between Chinese and Caucasian. Um, and what we found is that the lens through which people who travel or who have left their home country is very different than those of your home country. 
So when I would travel from place to place and when my son had met several, you know, 18 to 20 different nationalities in a single school, that's a very different perception of standard than someone who only knows their own neighbors that they've grown up, second, third generation living in a country. And I think that's what some major differences are. But what I find is that when, Mark, you did this series with The Next Generation, it was an eye-opener. I I had tremendous hope after listening to both of those series. I really did believe it was going to be a process that would take such a long time to change the mindset, particularly, as you mentioned, the media is such a big part of it. But when you listen to the next generation who is even just under 30, the hope that they have, the perception that they have of how to live with each other, the integration of diversity, the, the change of what's acceptable behavior, among their peers was just enlightening because they they're basically said we're not going to put up with this anymore what what your generation did you older people um is just unacceptable we're going to treat each other differently because we have to live on this planet together and it's the right thing to do and i think if i focus back on a brand like levi's how Mm -hmm. levi's communicated themselves in 1959 Mm -hmm. was you know, very different to 1969, which was different to 1979, mm-hmm. 89, 99. It's still leave us. Right. But the principles that they believe in, the society that they're in, it's all changing and evolving. And that happened so fast. Even between 1965 and 1970, mm-hmm. the change that happened there was phenomenal. And that's what I got out of that Next Generation series that we did was after each one of the calls, I got a feeling that actually we're likely to get there. The thing is we just need to make sure we hand over the reins for the next generation that are coming through with the guidance of the elders. I think, uh, Mark, that's where we haven't really touched upon culture with brands. Mm. And uh, you mentioned that connecting really with a bit of the sporting, uh, you, you tried to start that conversation on the sporting thing. That's about culture. It's about tribalism. It's about a belief in something that actually sort of inspires you as greater than yourself. And that's something I think that brand and standards also fit in, is this word culture. And uh, uh, we spend a lot of time, you know, the identity, for example, or brand identity, the visual visual manifestation of a company can only really be affected if it actually represents the culture. So there's a cultural change thing and why do people want to work with some particular place, why do people wear certain things, why do people you know, admire certain things is because there's some relationships between what the messages are and they feel and who they are themselves. And it's a very, very look, this is a very, very interesting conversation because the way you started it at Standards, we've shown how it can go out in such a huge, big, um, uh, big, big, big discussion. But it is about, it all comes back to people and how people operate and people then for mankind, and how does mankind fit on the planet? I mean, it's quite a simple equation, really. <laughs> uh, well, well, actually, and, and so what we're meant to do is make it look that it's simple, but we know there's complexity in it because that's actually what we're in charge to do, which is to make very complex, very nuanced things appear very elegant and very simple because if you want to, you can always find things that make it complex. We're you going know, to do a, let, let me, can I, sorry, <laughs> Betsy. Go for it. 
the T-shirt alone says it all. And I, I, my God, I'm sure David was going to say the same thing, which is, did you orchestrate the relationship of that last question to what you were actually had put on this morning? No, but it's true. Um, one of the things I was just going to say is a, a lot of it is interesting um, because it, it's the cultural aspect of what is what constitutes good behavior can, particularly in a corporate setting, is a, is really at the helm. And this idea that the president was asked to step down in the sporting, I think, is I mean, admirable thing because obviously what was there wasn't working. There needs to be a huge evolution. Um, a huge transformation, and that can only happen at the top. And when we're looking at corporate standards, even within what happens in our own company, um, there's a corporate fit of what we call you are you brand on brand, and on brand means are you you know have you drunk the Kool Aid? Do you believe in what the chairman is saying? Do you believe in the path that he's setting? Um, and the evolution of that brand as for the next decade, are you a fit to that? And I think it will always be, whether it's in a corporate setting or on a country setting, it has to come from the top. And that's why people follow leaders if they're part of a, a, a union of people that really believe in the same thing. I think on that, I think I, 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 I um, sum it up as being you're either unconscious or you're conscious. Mm. Uh, you know, when you're the CEO of Rio Tinto, you've like 45,000 years of uh, Aboriginal, uh, uh, you know, um, sophistication and and uh, and uh, and recognition. You'd have to look at that CEO and that organisation and say that is an unconscious organisation that's got no uh, understanding of its relationship and its responsibility in their roles. Just like a CEO, a chairman, there is a responsibility much greater than the bottom line. And that's something that uh, I think everyone's becoming much, much more aware of, uh, of, of a bigger picture. And I think that's a nice definition there. You snooze, you lose. And if you're an organisation that is snoozing and is not conscious to the standards of a society, you're likely to be showing the exit door very quickly. Exactly. It's a pretty I mean, tough, it's, pretty, it's, uh, with, with the digital world now, you know, you know, nothing is sacred. Uh, everything can be seen and everything can be distributed and everything, everything can be commented upon. Mm-hmm. I, I hear I hear a lot of people saying we hope, we hope, we're hopeful, but I hear my daughter say I will, I can, and so maybe that's the generational difference. And and perhaps my belief at the beginning where it's never going to change. Well, maybe I'm wrong. And and no, I love, I just, sorry to cut in. I love what you just said there because I I can't stand people who are optimistic. I'm solution, <laughs> I'm solution oriented. I'm solution orientated. Oh, come on, come on. <laughs> an optimist that executes. Is that okay? Uh, 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 that's possible. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Look, everyone, I'm going to wrap up because what, what's really interesting, and Richard, you said this, we started something that seemed like, oh, it was going off in all sorts of directions, but we've got here, we know that there's principles, there's technical standards, there's corporate standards, but really it comes down to the culture about the vision, the values and the purpose, and that's what we're trying to go bring back into some common understanding but if we don't if we're not kind to each other we're not going to get there with that before i wrap up is there anything anyone wants to get in before i close this out come on i'll be like an auctioneer going once <laughs> going twice no all right i'm really i am always humbled to go share people's minds viewers this is awesome because none of these people on this call here are standards experts 
but we all live by standards and we all take part in how they evolve. And I'm really pleased that you um, let me use your minds as we go through this town, Holly. Thank you very much. And I look forward to seeing you on the next town call. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Mark. Ciao.